0: Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show.
1: Classic hits.
0: Now, one man, by the way, Who's caused quite a bit of a stir on the internet at the moment. He has his own YouTube channel uh, known as the Fat Emperor. Ivor Cummins, who completed a biomedical or biochemical engineering degree in 1990. He has spent 30 years in corporate technical leadership positions. His career speciality has been leading large worldwide teams in complex problem-solving activity. And since 2012, Ivor has been intensively researching the root causes of modern chronic disease. A particular focus has been on cardiovascular disease, diabetes, Obesity. Uh, He shares his research insights at public speaking engagements around the world revealing the key nutritional and lifestyle interventions uh, which will deliver excellent health and personal productivity. More recently of course he has been looking at the figures in relation to COVID-19 and sharing his views both on his own YouTube channel the Fat Emperor and also on Twitter and other social medias as well as well as giving talks about it and he joins me on the air tonight. Ivor Cummings good afternoon to you or good evening to you sorry. Great to be here, Niall. Yeah, well, Ivor, it's not a good day, is it really, to be, I suppose, having a pop at the government and their strategy when we have announced tonight 442 new cases, quite a high number, and four deaths. Now, I don't know if any of those deaths are historical. That hasn't been mentioned. But we could take it that those four deaths happened, obviously, in the last 24 hours if it hasn't been mentioned that they're historical. This puts a lot of fear into people when we see case numbers going up and deaths going slightly up. Also, we're seeing ICU levels up into double digits. We're also seeing, I suppose, you know, hospitalizations up over 115, and people go, well, ah, this is getting serious again.
1: Yeah, and that's understandable, but we've got to remember we're moving into the autumn now, and it's an inevitability. We're going to have respiratory distress, and, you know, as we head into the winter, we're going to have um, more of it, and this is something that has occurred for kind of forever. So I think the key measure will be the mortality above or excess mortality in the coming weeks and through the winter and is it notably or substantially above say
0: 2018 or 2015 uh, or other kind of seasons. Well, well 2017 eight stroke 18 was a particularly bad flu season here, mm. where we had people literally in corridors, in hospitals. Uh, the hospitals were overrun as far as I remember, 25,000 admissions into A&E in the space of three months. A lot of those people would have been sent home with a you know, packet of paracetamol, but in saying that, some uh, many of those, uh, probably a few thousand, would have been admitted to hospital, and many would have had serious conditions, including uh, pneumonia at the end of it, and possibly died.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In the UK, uh, the 1718 was very severe. Many hospitals were overrun. It was in the media. Uh, no one really noticed too much, it appears. Uh, but in January, in the mirror, uh, I have the article, there were 20,000 excess deaths uh, over December. So doctors have assured me as well, yeah, it was a really tough period. Uh, but again, it didn't have the COVID kind of scenario. So it was probably more accepted as
0: what happens every few years. OK, well, you, I mean, you started off kind of, you know, researching the root causes of modern chronic diseases. Um, and this, of course, you know, came along. It hit, or hit our shores in and around the end of January, February, although some people believe maybe earlier it could have been November, December. We just didn't recognize it at the time. What were your thoughts? Were you like everybody else at first when the WHO said, listen, there's a 5% mortality. We're all going to die. I mean, were you like, was there a fear just like everybody else when you heard about this?
1: Well, yeah, okay, I can answer that truthfully. So I had no fear, (laughs) and it's not because I'm particularly brave, but I had seen the Chinese data, and I took a bit of an interest, and I realized that the curve appeared to be following a kind of a classic influenza-type illness, a seasonal-type curve, up sharply and then tailing off. And I'd seen the Diamond Princess uh, cruise ship data, which had elderly people, and it was quite clear from that data in a petri dish environment that the damage would be somewhat limited and very very highly targeted towards aged or immunocompromised now all deaths are are important of course i don't mean to understate it but i could see that the impact would be probably like a bad flu year and uh, therefore i wasn't particularly worried uh, not that i didn't have empathy for people affected But I just said, okay, a bad flu year is probably what it looked like, and that's essentially what it it Mm. did look like.
0: But you don't get involved, I suppose, from an emotional or a medical point of view. What your speciality is, watching these curves, looking at the numbers, trying to solve the problem, and trying to figure out how we can get through this in a more logical fashion. Do you believe that the government made the right decision back in March when we didn't have very much data apart from China? And some of the videos that were going around, I got a few of them on WhatsApp myself in and around the start of um, March and end of February of people literally dead on streets. Now, we know that clearly didn't happen. I don't know what though, where they were faked or whatever, because I've had, in, you know, in Ireland, I haven't seen people dying on streets or, or in the UK for that matter, uh, where it's been particularly bad. But I mean, when you were looking at this data at the start, like everybody else, were you kind of glad the government stepped in and said, OK, until we know what's going on, let's just close everything?
1: Yeah, well, actually, back then, I, by having seen the data, I kind of already knew that a lockdown wouldn't really do a whole lot for an influenza type viral transmission illness. And I figured as well, it's probably come into Europe around November, December, and there'd be a lot of dormancy. So sure enough, we had several months where not much happened, and then we got the inevitable sudden rise of of the seasonal trigger. So I figured it wouldn't do much, but I also acknowledged the precautionary principle. Everyone was scared. We had the weird stuff coming out of China, like you mentioned. And uh, I said, look, fair enough, a couple of weeks, flatten the curve. Um, It's not really going to flatten the curve, but it doesn't really matter. It's a few weeks, and we'd be taking action, and it's probably the right thing to do in principle. Now, the problem was after a few weeks when the curve turned over inevitably uh, and the ICUs began to, you know, come not under pressure and everything began to relax down in the classic curve, uh, they didn't really want to stop the lockdown type measures. And that's
0: when I became more interested and got more involved. And when you say they didn't want to stop, I mean the government will pat themselves on the back as Leo did, and uh, and everybody when he, when he handed over, I suppose, the gauntlet to, to me, hal Martin, and patted themselves on the back, saying the lockdown worked, well done, everybody, we're in this together, which was the, the kind of line. So you don't believe, do you believe without the lockdown, we would have seen exactly more or less the same set of curve or would we have lost a few more people? Because surely the whole idea of lockdown is to reduce the amount of contacts that people have. And surely with a virus, uh, which has an or not of maybe two or so, um, that the more people are together, the quicker it'll spread, which gives us less chance to deal with it. Surely that would be the logic, wouldn't it?
1: It would be somewhat intuitive, but then again, the science is more complex than that. So with a high R up to 2.8, as was clearly called out in February, uh, when it comes into Europe in November, and we had the first UK death recently verified, a man in December, so it was coming in in November, so we had four unfettered months with this high R virus. So um, just think about that a little before anything really happened. Uh, Well, I I
0: suppose people blame the main, I suppose, trigger for this was kind of put on the Italians coming over that weekend, Cheltenham. There was a couple of trigger moments that people kind of pin it back to and say, that's when it kind of kicked off. And then there was a bit of a lag for three weeks. And then we saw the increase in cases. Uh, You wouldn't go along with that, no?
1: Well, in the US, it's been verified January um, at least was the first case. And in the UK, it would have come in in November because we had a man die in, in December. So the reality is it came in earlier and there was no restraints, no restrictions, no one even knew about it. So you can point to first cases and you can point to events, but that's associational data. So that's associating something with something that occurs. Um, It seems intuitive. Humans have been doing that for Millions of years. But we probably
0: wrote off many deaths in January and February as being part of influenza or pneumonia because we didn't really think that people had COVID-19 yet in Ireland.
1: I I think probably quite a lot of that. I've been assured by a a doctor friend, an Irish doctor, uh, that his parents definitely died of it in January. Mm -hmm. And based on the symptoms and all, he didn't know it at the time, but he saw them as unique. So that's anecdotal. So I'd be careful saying that. I have a few more of those from nurses.
0: Well, I know. Um, I know. Dr. Martin Freely pointed to a case. Uh, I think in Cork, he was talking about a man. I think he was yeah. referring to December. I think.
1: Oh right. Okay. Very good. Yeah, that's yeah. a documented case. So essentially, it goes back to the point. And in Brazil, we see as well in the human sewage, same as Europe, uh, SARS-CoV-2. This virus was present in human sewage. We were pooing it out in November, and Brazil, however, because of the seasonal triggering I mentioned brazil actually saw nothing up until around april may june july they had the surge in mortality so there's seasonal triggering here but the virus comes in quite a lot earlier depending on the area of the world the triggering is different. So, so, the whole so well, com- well,
0: well then, where are we now, Ivor? So, you you talk about this classic curve, and I've seen these curves in every single country. They kind of rises up, falls back down, and then elevates slightly again. So, you got this classic curve everywhere, including places like Sweden, who didn't have a very strict lockdown. It's a bit of a myth to say they didn't have a lockdown, but they just didn't have a very strict one. Uh, they didn't wear the masks, they didn't uh, close their schools, they didn't. People went to work and went on public transport, etc., etc. So, they, and they didn't close their bars, but they did ask people to social. Distance. They did uh, stop all large events, um, you know, um, concerts and gigs and football matches and all that. So they did do something about it. So we've still seen the same curve more or less everywhere, no matter what any country did. So where are we now? The curve, according to the government and uh, NEFIT, is rising again and we're seeing an increase in cases. Is that directly related to the fact that they're doing more testing or is there genuinely more people getting it, in your opinion?
1: Okay, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Briefly, we'll dwell on Sweden. So Sweden, actually, I have a CNN uh, report where they visited Stockholm on May the 6th, and I also interviewed yesterday an ER doctor in Sweden, and it all checks out. So basically, they showed people living almost as normal in Stockholm on uh, May the 6th, and that was kind of in the middle of their epidemic. So yes, they did follow. Basically, they followed the rules for epidemics, pandemics, that were generated over many decades right up to the end of 2019. They followed the original science, and we are the exception.
0: We leverage science apparently from China, lockdown science, but that was new. Well, but but, the UK are doing the same as we're doing at the moment, aren't oh, they?
1: We, we as a very broad, we, uh, I okay. mean, we all over the place, um, encouraged by WHO, rightly or wrongly, uh, we did something new and um, interesting. Uh, but we now have five published papers uh, from all around the world, that actually analysed the data on lockdown efficacy and impact, and it wasn't based on modelling like Neil Ferguson's modelling that was out by a factor of twelve. That's established. Uh, it's actually. Well, Sam,
0: Sam McConkey uh, said the same thing here at the start of this. He described this. Um, he similar to it could be similar to an Irish civil war. I think was I'm paraphrasing. And he also said there would be a, possibly 120, up to 120,000 people would die.
1: Well, yeah, they quoted twenty-eight to 35,000 months ago and I did some videos on that and showed how Sweden, with the minimal um, distancing and washing hands, etc., no masks, uh, they basically saw around 12 times lower than the modelling for Sweden with minimal measures. So it's out by a factor of 10. And I think that's actually a scientific fact now. It's not really a
0: conjecture.
1: I mean, It is fair
0: to say that Sweden now are looking at probably the lowest cases in Europe, uh, the lowest hospitalizations and ICU. But at the start, uh, or going back to May or April, they were criticized because uh, in comparison, in the deaths per million, when we look back at Sweden, they would have had a higher rate deaths per million. Now, I do know there's different factors there, like, you know, the age demograph of the country, too, is obviously Mm. a factor. But I mean, they did have a higher death rate at the start.
1: They did indeed, but uh, notably there's a a three-and-a-half-week lag approximately between when you put in measures and when you actually can see a result in the debt figures. And Sweden was rising in debt well within that three-and-a-half weeks. So to simplify for the audience, they were already different than the Nordics before any of their choice of measures could have kicked in markedly. So the fact is Sweden, there's a paper out now, 16 reasons why Sweden was higher than the Nordics. And it goes through 16 reasons. And lockdown is the least of it. So Sweden at 580 deaths per million, approximately Ireland at around 360. If you account for care, home and demographics and other vectors, uh, they're similar to Ireland. Rough and tough. And are lower than the UK and and around seven or eight other countries.
0: So Sweden Well then, well had, then if, that, if that's the case, and I'm not disagreeing with you, I mean, a lot of countries yeah. now are, are now looking at Sweden saying, well, maybe they didn't get it wrong, they're embarrassing the rest of Europe. But if that's the case, then why is Boris Johnson, why is Mihal Martin or Stephen Donnelly, whoever happens to be in charge of health in this country at the moment, really don't know anymore. Even Leo Varadkar's thrown his pennies worth in today. I mean, why are we not looking at Sweden or looking at other countries? If you're saying there's evidence there to suggest that lockdowns don't work, why are we still doing it?
1: Well, because one thing is the, <laughs> the embarrassment and, and political embarrassment and, and a million other things are beyond colossal now. Because we've destroyed economies, we've basically taken away human rights, we've isolated the poor aged, you know, many of them would would much prefer to be able to hug and meet their people uh, rather than have a little bit of extra existence if indeed the lockdown is, is affording that. So I could go on and on, cancer diagnoses, missed, depression, uh, elevation of suicides is inevitable. So the collateral damage, the cost and the cost benefit of lockdowns is enormously uh, out of kilter. So the very concept that it was a mistake—I mean, it, it, no politician in the world is going to even face that at a subconscious level. Okay, because, maybe because
0: you think that would that would mean defeat for them. But, but are we saying that then politicians don't have the best interest of their citizens at heart? Because realistically, politicians will be well aware of the damage they're doing to the economy, to businesses, to people's lives, the quality of people's lives um, and the future. I mean, when it comes to non-COVID related illnesses, which are not being early diagnosed. So surely they, they would see the unquantifiable damage that they're doing for the next two years. Certainly. Yeah, well,
1: they, they believe in their heads that it's justified. And now they're not analysing it. There's no proper analysis of the cost of this at all, except for one paper from England, uh, which is scary in its own right. Uh, So no one's actually looking at it. So you can ask, well, why are they not? Uh, And you can ask, why would they not worry about it? And I guess they, many of them, I suppose, are caught up in their own hysteria. And because they scaremongered the populations in the countries originally, the populations now have been severely scaremongered and they're actually demanding of the politicians more lockdowns. You know, the teachers were asking for no school openings. So they've created a kind of a monster of fear and I guess fear got the best of them. They lost the run of themselves. They became...
0: Yeah, but when you say scaremongered, are people not genuinely... I mean, are people not genuinely scared by the information that they're receiving and the information that they're seeing or, you know, okay, you know, I, I know we can write off some of the debts and I don't mean that any insensitive way to people who have very critical underlying conditions but many people you will agree have died directly of COVID-19.
1: Absolutely so the figures well let's let's dwell there for a moment so the figures for Ireland and this may surprise people shall we say maybe not shock them but surprise them so around 1800 died tragically um, with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and many would have been mostly driven by COVID absolutely. The new figures are maybe 1,100 excess deaths. And we saw Leo Wrecker a couple of months ago retweeting that. And then there's other lower figures from some sources. And then there's the figure of 100 with no comorbidities. Uh, But we'll put that one aside. Well, I think it's
0: fair fair to put it aside because if I had diabetes, I would have a comorbidity um, or an underlying condition. And if I died of COVID, I could have another 30 years left in my life.
1: Exactly, yeah. because we all have a right to life and just because we have a condition, exactly. I mentioned it for the record, but put it yeah. aside. So let's say 1800, the high figure. Many people may not be aware that 1700 approximately of it, these 1800, and it was an RTE in the May 28th, I saved the webpage from the HSE, 1700 or around 95% were never given an intensive care unit to try to save them. Now people would say, hold on, that's impossible. Uh, but no, it's on RTE. So why would that be? And the answer, quite simply, is that 1,700 out of the 1,800 deaths were so aged or comorbid or stage four cancer, perhaps, it would, have been, failure,
0: it would have been unethical,
1: unethical
0: to bring them to a hospital. Yeah.
1: Yes. Now, again, I stress, because you get the people who screech, I stress all life is important. My own mother is 80, coming into this, right? I have a lot of relations who are elderly and with diabetes. But let's stick to facts and proper management of a situation. 1,700 were not afforded ICU. That is the picture of Ireland's epidemic. And I know that most people in Ireland I spoke to had a perception that people were dying all over the place, that this was terrible. And in the Euromomo countries, 360 million people, let's stick to facts, this year there's 185,000 excess deaths in the respiratory season. And 2018 was 140,000. So we're around 30 to 35% worse
0: than 2018 in terms of excess mortality. Okay, and for people who don't understand, that's the amount of people who died this year versus last year versus the year before, measuring the Mm -hmm. amount of people that overall that died. Because on average, what is it, 79 people die every single day in this country, in and around that kind of figure, uh, die every day in this country. Um, Well, that's yeah
1: that's another beautiful opening because you know you mentioned earlier you know we've risen we're rising well of course we're rising we're heading into the season where respiratory will rise but just to give an example on august 24th in ireland right there were 0.1 or one tenth of a person per million people died per day with sars-cov-2 one in 10 million people on august 24th and now we're up to three-tenths of a person in a million people or three in 10 million dying on september 27th so people need to realize the figures all life is important but the figures for mortality from this are actually vanishingly small and they will rise coming into the winter as is and i hate to use the word normal but but it it is sadly normal blame the virus You, you you can't blame anything
0: else. Well, many viruses, many different types of viruses, yeah. of course, which are seasonal. But, but I mean, and, and everybody is listening to what you're saying, Ivor. And I've you know, i watched some of your videos and I've looked at some of your facts and figures that you have up on Twitter. And I've read some information myself. And I'm not disagreeing with anything that you've probably said tonight because everything you've said is quite factual. It's obviously the whatever take you want to have on this. But, again, it comes back to that if we're seeing, you know, the cases going up, And now we'll argue or we'll talk about, when I say we'll argue, we'll talk about PCR testing in a second and the amount of tests we're actually doing at the moment, which is an incredible amount of tests, 93,000, I think, in a seven day period, record numbers. Um, But if the cases are rising and more people, even if we factor in, you know, false positives, et cetera, et cetera, more people are having uh, SARS-CoV-2, why is the debt rate not rising at the same rate?
1: Okay, great question. So I sent out a tweet and I repeatedly resend it to people who ask the question. So there's a few primary reasons and then there'll be many secondary ones. But one of the first primary reasons is the passing of the susceptible. So these viruses uh, tend to cause severe sequelae or, or outcomes in the aged uh, and people with compromised immune systems. And we know that since February. Uh, so the susceptible have largely passed in many instances. So that's going to take away the debt uh, impact. But we will.
0: Uh, yeah. But and, and I heard this mentioned. I, I'm not too sure who said it in the White House re- more recently in relation to people who are susceptible. And that's why the debt rate has gone down, because those who it, I suppose it already uh, got into are already gone or they've passed away. But every year we have more susceptible people. So more people become susceptible, don't they?
1: Exactly, and that's a crucial point too, and I'm glad you said it, because over the six or eight months, uh, these viruses come in, they cause an impact, and in the following winter, when uh, I'll actually go through the three top reasons. So the first one was the passing susceptible. The second one is that you develop community immunity. So many of us have some immunity from prior coronaviruses uh, in various mechanisms, but, but we develop more, obviously, when the least uh, immune are exposed and the third thing is seasonal difference Uh, the suppression of the human immune system in winter causes more exposure so they're the three main reasons and there's a bunch of others why why
0: why does our immune system i mean we, we always hear about seasonal viruses and you know is it to do with temperature i mean what is the reason why you know our immune system seems more susceptible you know kind of from october right through to february what what is that reason
1: well, the primary uh, hypothetical reason, because no one has proven it conclusively, but there's some great papers on this, is that uh, the lowering of the ultraviolet flux uh, causes a lowering of vitamin D and other photo products in our bodies. And we tend to, we know we get higher heart attacks. We know we get obviously massively higher influenza in the summer and the, the early spring. And it would relate to a lowering of the immune function. And one of the mechanisms is vitamin D. Uh, levels in the blood and UV but also there's temperature and humidity which can favour the viral because, the because I, I, I,
0: some people had put it down to temperature initially at the start they thought for example that COVID-19 wouldn't survive over 25 or 26 degrees and then all of a sudden we were seeing it spreading across places like Florida and Iran and places like that where it would, it would be quite warm now the argument was that it was probably been spread in air conditioned buildings and not out in the open because both ultraviolet light has been proved to, to obviously eradicate the virus and also high temperatures Um, so you know are we saying that during the summer season which we've just had and by the way we had good weather during the lockdown and we had a lot of deaths so that probably doesn't tie in too well with that Um, but are we saying that when the weather gets duller darker and colder that we're going to see COVID-19 I suppose spread quicker Is, is that going to be the case? Yeah
1: well you can there's a couple of schools of thought you can say spread or you can say resurgence of the virus Um, because there is a certain amount of dormancy involved too, but we won't get caught in that. But yes, in the winter, this is normal. We've seen the pattern forever. And coronaviruses are very similar to flu. They're just a little later. They tend to be later towards the spring in their surge. Um, But this has been documented and studied forever. And the prior two coronaviruses, the SARS-1 and that, uh, they demonstrated an initial curve, like we said, And then they didn't really have a second wave for the three reasons I said. Now, nothing is impossible in science. A totally bizarre thing could happen. And SARS-CoV-2 could somehow become dominant this winter in Europe.
0: Could it mutate?
1: Uh, Not so much. So it's generally accepted. Influenzas can mutate in a major way. And the 1918 flu may have been an example of that. Uh, But the coronavirus family is very stable. And there will be mutations occasionally, like this one, but to do a rapid mutation into a very virulent form uh, would be highly unusual.
0: So, but nothing's impossible. Okay, so, so where, where are we at now when it comes to a plan in your mind? Let me, just okay. put, let me put you in a position, Ivor. You're in charge of the country. It's your, deci- it's your job to make the next decision, um, and it's a difficult decision for anybody in government to make because you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. So what would you do tomorrow if you were in charge?
1: Okay, well, I'll say first that uh, I've obviously linked in and interviewed a lot of professors in many fields on this, so it's not just my opinion, uh, besides my own research. Uh, I would say I would do exactly what Sweden did and are doing, uh, pretty much. And that would be perfect, in my mind, crisis management uh, for an optimum outcome for all of society, health and well-being. So what you're
0: you're talking about is a reasonably slow herd immunity.
1: Uh, yeah, and to be honest, herd immunity is an inevitability. I know, it's, always, not, it's,
0: not a, it's almost a dirty word in the media at the moment, but I know it's, it shouldn't be a dirty word. It's probably the one thing that we have going for us as human beings.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Professor Beda Stadley, who's the Fauci of Switzerland, I interviewed and I went over to Switzerland. We, we, to we, had, him on,
0: we had him on the show recently. Oh,
1: yes, yes. you did. Yeah. So he basically said it all. He essentially said 80% of people largely with a new coronavirus are de facto immune. Now, it doesn't mean they're immune. It means that they'll really experience no particular impact and they won't transmit much because they've got mucosal or T-cell or many types of immunity that recognize proteins from prior coronaviruses. And this is just a fundamental scientific fact. So this
0: this is why when COVID-19 gets into a nursing home and there's 30 residents, only 15 or so actually get it. And why don't the rest get it? Because they probably have some sort of T-cell immunity.
1: Yes, or even better, uh, all of the tracking of symptomatic people, the index cases, the studies... Uh, generally speaking, eighty plus percent of people who mix with those people indoors don't get it. Right, so that kind of illustrates that it's not that we're all Neil okay. Ferguson assumed we were all naive. We had no immunity. That's a preposterous suggestion in his. Well, well, well,
0: I think most experts, with the exception of a few. Have um, more or less said at this stage, there is a percentage, and probably a large percentage of the population yeah. who will never get it, and even if they do, it'll be asymptomatic. Mm. So, so let's 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 run with this kind of slow herd immunity that you're talking about. So, we're not going to have football games, or you're not going to have large gatherings. Uh, would you restrict them to say four or five hundred people outdoors, maybe a hundred people indoors, or what way would you do that?
1: Well, yeah, okay. So, I'll be a bit controversial here, and I'll say when the seasonal curve, the Gompertz curve, was fulfilled around May, uh, we could have actually opened up almost completely. Now, I'm not saying I would definitely do that because there's a precautionary principle and you'd hedge. But we could have opened and what about,
0: up... And what about the, the hospitals? Because look, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's influenza, whether, no matter what the virus is, you know that our health service was on its knees before COVID-19 came along. We were already yeah. in, under a huge amount of pressure. This has actually shown up the health service uh, to be as bad as it actually was, and the government needed to step in and do something about it anyway. So maybe this is a good thing in some sense. That's probably the only good thing to come out of it. But I mean, if you had have opened up, say, back in end of June... Um, and just opened up everything and said, right, go off and play your GAA and have your gigs in the Point Depot and do whatever you want. And all of a sudden, you had thousands of people uh, getting it to a herd immunity. In some sense, that's a good thing because they're not going to hopefully get it again. But there are going to be casualties to that.
1: Well, that is very debatable. So whether... The strategy would have been to protect the over 65s, particularly with comorbidities or illnesses known to be associated with suppressed immune function, and you would have done that while letting the rest of society run largely free. And you might have hedged a bit to prevent major events, uh, but you would have certainly opened up, and you most certainly would not have, in the middle of the summer, with all impacts on the floor, and we know coronaviruses float around in the summer with almost no impact, we know that from prior studies, you would never have brought in mandatory masks with threat of prison and fines. So, so
0: now, do you, you don't agree with the masks, but is it, be, is it for... Um, I suppose liberty reasons and taking away your rights no. to make a decision, or is it that you don't believe the evidence is there? Because they claim, although there's been many studies that say there's no evidence to suggest that masks are of any benefit whatsoever, uh, but there is claims now that there's observational studies. Uh, I haven't seen any of them. Uh, there's observational studies that masks do actually help to stop the virus.
1: Yeah, well, we have forty four decades of science that say no significant useful impact. And we have four weeks of studies rapidly thrown out with associational evidence, which is the lowest possible form of evidence, that suddenly said they did in June. Uh, I'd put four decades ahead of four weeks. So that's just the way I am. So my motivation is truth and science. uh, And also, of course, the future health of our society. Was it
0: not good advice to tell people who particularly would be symptomatic, you know, sitting on a bus, the last thing you need is somebody who may be symptomatic, sitting Uh, on a bus, coughing their brains out? Uh, to tell them to wear a mask.
1: Absolutely symptomatic, but we didn't. We said everyone. And the other thing is, independent of the science of whether masks are effective in viral transmission, and it's, it's completely hazy and very weak, uh, Professor Carl Hennigan of Oxford Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine came to the Irish Oireachtas, and he said, if you want to put in masks, you can do it, but you cannot claim it's evidence-based. And he was very, very clear on that, and he's correct. So, well, there are, these, well, there
0: are people who will argue there's a correlation with the fact that the case numbers yeah, have gone up over the last or, three weeks and with four weeks and we've made masks mandatory over the last four weeks, uh, which means it probably didn't have too much so, in relation there, but maybe it did.
1: There would, but if you look all across Europe, mandatory mask orders that came in and were immediately complied with, they had zero effect on the R-curve and zero effect on any real-world outcome across all the countries. That's a fact that you can't get around. Okay, so, so, so if you're in
0: charge tomorrow, you would, you would remove that... Mandatory. If people want to wear masks, yeah, absolutely. Oh, happy. yeah. But but, you...
1: You, but the other thing now is, and I have to stress it, uh, I pushed masks in March, end of March and April. And the reason I did is it made much more sense than lockdowns. And I said, why don't we protect the elderly, protect the ill, and uh, use masks? And I was all for it. But the problem is, masks in the middle of a summer. We've had four months now with vanishingly small impact, exactly as predicted by the science, and we brought in mass in the middle of the summer. Now, anti-science is offensive to me. Sorry, it's just one of the things that gets me going. And independent of libertarianism or anything, anti-science offends me. And bringing in mass in the middle of a summer, right, for an influenza type, severe influenza type illness that's seasonal, dramatically clear in the data and you bring in masks in the middle of the summer when nothing's happening, when would you ever take them out if you bring them in when they're completely pointless? And this is what really hit me in June, July. I said, what are they
0: doing? I mean, was it, was it surprising to you that when you heard Nephis and Luke O'Neill and Professor Fauci in America and everybody turning around at the time that you were probably saying stick them on you earlier in the year, and they were saying absolutely not? Uh, They will actually do more damage. Luke O'Neill's very words were, if you want to wear a mask and there's nothing wrong with you, you've been watching too many horror movies. Um, And Fauci (laughs) said something similar, something along the same lines, that people were paranoid if they wanted to wear masks. And within two or three months, they had all changed their mind, including Neffet. And I heard Neffet on the radio at the time saying they didn't approve of wearing masks, but all of a sudden changed their mind again. Did that turnaround shock you?
1: It shocked me what they did because it was anti-scientific and it's always dangerous in a society when they reject science and bring in draconian measures that have no real basis in science. So I was shocked. And yes, I'd seen them go against masks and was surprised in March because it was a measure that was relatively easy, might uh, help a little with transmission. And we were going to head into a big viral curve. So why not do it? Would you, I mean, would, you
0: not, would you not adopt? When I, when I asked you about, you know, running the country and you said, well, if it was the end of June, you probably would have said, look, go back to normal with the exception of maybe the very large gatherings. I mean, I know Raj Vopal in Edinburgh had suggested that there was 137 million zero to 19-year-olds in the eight major European countries in America and only 61 had died. So the logical thing to do if you wanted to create a herd immunity would be to encourage young people to be together. Mm. Uh, obviously, whilst protecting those in the vulnerable groups, would that not be a better suggestion? if you were going to go down that herd immunity route?
1: Well, if you were a scientific thinker, it would be, but we seem to have a lack of those. <laughs> so, I mean, what can I say? But, of I mean,
0: it, but see, this is what frustrates me. I'm talking to you, and you're giving me facts and figures, and, and your interpretation, of course, of those facts and figures. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have somebody on tomorrow who might be from Neffet, and they will give me facts and figures, maybe similar to yours, and they'll have a different interpretation of those facts and figures. Um, and, yes we're all going for this one interpretation. I'm listening to other people, other great scientists, other great immunologists and virologists and people who know what they're talking about, people like yourself who, you know, have spent years in solving problems and studying modern chronic diseases. And yet nobody is listening. Everybody is like putting their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 we're oh. doing it our way. I, I just, I don't believe in all the kind of you know, the, the 5G stuff and waving the flags on a Sunday afternoon and the Patriots and all this. That stuff there is just irrelevant to me because all that goes into, kind of runs into conspiracy theorism. But what I do believe is I, I can't understand, and I'll come back to it, I know I mentioned it at the start, what the end game is. I know you're saying maybe they're afraid to stop because they'll have to admit that they were wrong. But surely they're watching these governments, be it Ireland, England, France, Spain. I mean, they're calling for a lockdown in Madrid. There was one in Liverpool, lockdown in Liverpool there today as well. Surely they're watching their own economies go down the toilet and their own citizens suffer badly. I just don't see the end game for them. And I I don't see this collusion, this kind of new world order that people keep wandering on about online as well. So, I mean... I just don't think it's that simple to to write it off as some sort of collusion or new world order or great reset or whatever it happens to be. I mean, do you, do you have a theory on it, Iver? <laughs> oh,
1: a lot to unpack there again. Well, five uh, G, I wouldn't wipe my arse with, and that's a personal <laughs> opinion. Uh, I just ignore everything that comes into my inbox on that because, well, because of my engineering background. And it could be wrong or it could be right. Who cares? Not interested. Uh, in terms of uh, You know the dynamics of this i do root cause diagrams for everything and it's not just technical stuff you can do it for politics you can do it for psychology what are the root causes driving now we talked about big ones i mean the fear of being wrong the fear of being caught out if deaths do rise and all of that is driving all of these people Uh, in a sense you could almost say in the irish phrase they've lost the run of themselves and i think in the face of the data that's what's happened however you can't ignore You know, conspiracy theories are when you say you have secret knowledge of some cabal somewhere planning something. And uh, obviously, I don't touch that with a barge pole. However, it's not a conspiracy theory if they actually tell you what they're doing. So I think that's a great phrase. So I would just say there are influences in the world, and they're open, and they're completely transparent. No one's looking. The WHO have been very clear in what they want to drive, for better or for worse, and that is mass influencing all the governments. The World Economic Forum... Well that, WHO, well, that is
0: their job. They're funded by countries all over the world to make those decisions on behalf... I mean, obviously, America have their own with the CDC, and we have the European Centre for yeah. Disease Control, but the WHO, with the exception of America, because they're not buying into it anymore, um, are, I suppose, essentially in charge when we get to a pandemic stage.
1: Well, yes and no. They're, they're not a democratically elected organisation as such. And they are an advisor, but they've become almost like the orchestra lead uh, with full powers. But that kind of just happened in the last six or eight months. So you could argue about that. But anyway, they've made their position clear. And the World Economic Forum, you know, is is open and it sees coronavirus as a, a massive opportunity. And they've published on this on their website, very powerful international organization. And they have goals and strategies, you know, for shaping a new world And they've been very public. They see this as an opportunity. So there are many organizations that have goals and they may be good goals, but their goals are certainly leveraging uh, coronavirus uh, and an interest in having it be a very big thing. So let's just say there's no conspiracy. There's simply very large international organizations that see this as an opportunity. And I stress it could be a good opportunity. Maybe their goals and strategies are good for the world. It's not evil. Uh, It's just that there are a lot of people where this is an opportunity. And well, we've we
0: seen the tech companies, of course, benefit from COVID 19, particularly yeah. Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, all these other companies have benefited greatly. Uh, Amazon, in particular, a 300% rise uh, in, in turnover over the last seven months. But, but in saying that, getting back to, I suppose, COVID 19 here in Ireland, we're hearing the word new normal all the time Um, you know the way we behave the way we distance the way we interact as human beings and there has been great studies in the last 30 years on humans and primates and how you know social isolation or isolating from other human beings can be physically damaging as well as the mental health damage that it's causing to the country but do you believe we will ever get back to the old normal because I'm listening to some of these experts or so-called experts, which are wheeled out on television and radio in this country, telling us that this could be around till we get a vaccine, which could be five years, could be 10 years, could be next year. We don't know. Uh, And we need some sort of six or seven year plan. Am I going to be sitting here for six or seven years, not going away on holidays, having to wear a mask in a shop, not being able to be me mates or have them over to the house? Do you see that new normal lasting that long? And will we ever get back to the old normal?
1: Well, I would say firstly I got to call out that the first thing that really triggered my concern on this whole issue was actually in March before we experienced uh, the inevitable rise in mortality from this virus because I began to see the new normal phrase coming out everywhere as a certainty before we were even hit and I said hold on a minute how do they know there'll never be the old normal given the data from China and from the Diamond Princess how can they say there will never be an old normal when quite clearly it's going to be a kind of a very bad flu equivalent? How on earth can they state there will never be an old normal? And I wondered, how can they do that? And the thing is, you're right, it's been parroted ever since. But around June in Europe, it should have gone back largely to the old normal, except for what is part of the old normal are the epidemic guidelines of hygiene, washing hands, staying at home if you're sick, just like Sweden, and keeping distance when you're in an epidemic scenario. That's part of the old normal. I have no problem with that. We would not be discussing this if they followed the traditional guidelines for epidemics. We're only discussing it because the new normal has been forced in
0: and it doesn't make sense on most of the science. That's why we're here. Okay, two more questions for you just before you go. Um, One in relation to the long-term damage. Um, there's been a lot of stories in the paper about people who have long-term damage after having COVID-19 or having symptoms of COVID-19 and ending up in a hospital uh, where they can't get themselves back to normal. They're tired for months and months and months. Um, I, I know this can happen with pneumonia as well and influenza too. Um, but, I mean, are you denying that that those people are telling the truth or... I mean, we've had a lot of healthcare workers saying they can't get back to work again, they're not able to, and that they have long-term, you know, da- or you know, their tiredness and all sorts of um, lung scarring and all sorts of different things.
1: Yeah, well, I'm certainly not denying it because I haven't spoken on it, but but here we go. Will I deny it? So the reality is that the sequelae of, of influenza and shingles and many other viral illnesses, or sorry, sequelae meaning long-term kind of effects beyond recovering from the, the base disease... Uh, are not uncommon at all. Uh, Has COVID got a demonstrative and exceptional degree of that? Well, I'd simply say I'm waiting and watching because we've been going through this for eight months now, millions of people. There's 40,000 published scientific and medical papers on COVID. I know it's hard to believe, but there are on every facet and aspect. And I've read quite a few of them. But there is no convincing paper yet
0: in all that time longer-term uh, impacts now then you mean again versus any other virus
1: versus any other virus or even in general so if there's no published papers when this thing is getting published on like nothing before in human history
0: I would wonder why there's no publications and finally just before you go over the media they've had a huge, oh. the media have played a massive role in this right through from February Um, as we do here, we struggle sometimes to talk about anything else because people want to talk about it. You walk down the street, it's the first thing people say to you. It's not, it's a nice day today. It's that COVID is a terrible old thing, isn't it? Um, So how do you think the media have behaved in general?
1: Uh, Don't be afraid to
0: insult me, by the way. I'm I'm okay with that.
1: Uh, No, in fairness, you've done pretty well, (laughs) looking at your feed. But uh, shockingly, disgracefully, abominably, uh, I mean, there are not enough um, kind of <laughs> words to describe it. It's—I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime—and I. Well, when you say that,
0: what? They're one-sided or they're uh, uh, scaremongering, fear factor. It, well, I mean, it, it,
1: unbelievable. So they take every bit of bad news I've, I've observed and run with it gushingly, breathlessly, and any good news like T-cell immunity or community mm-hmm. immunity or comparisons with prior years, looking at full respiratory seasons. Anything that puts this in perspective has been put to the last page. And that's been consistent, except the Telegraph has been reasonably good. The Spectator has Professor John Leon and others. There's pockets of real journalism, little pockets like islands during this whole thing. And I'd say to the people listening, ask yourself the question on every major issue, that's ever happened, you have debate. Why was it that there was no debate on national
0: broadcasters or in general in the media? No debate on this. And what's more... But it seems that anybody who steps outside the box or tries yes. to suggest that, you know, this, we'll, we'll take Dr. Martin Freely, for example, who's been yep. a, who's a very credible man, um, a cardiovascular surgeon, as far as I know, uh, as also a clinical director of the Midlands Hospital. He had an opinion. Um, whether we agree with his opinion or not, the old days we would debate things and we would talk about it. But now it seems to be, I'm sorry, but your position is untenable. You better go.
1: Exactly. And when you have a society that's a free democratic Western society, and for some reason, for a single issue, debate is essentially outlawed, and even top epidemiologists and professors in various fields are taken off YouTube, back in March and April. It's not so bad now, thankfully. You've got to ask yourself the question. There's no conspiracy theory. You've got to ask the three-letter question. Why? Why no debate? Why no discussion? And it's an important question
0: for all... why Why do you think, just finally, why do you think that the media... Is it because bad news sells?
1: It is, it is a, a combination, a conflux of factors, bad news sells. The media are under pressure for many, many years now. And uh, someone told me in the media a simple thing. He said, a journalist who comes out with the latest scare story, no research needed because it fits the narrative, so you don't need to cover your ass, and you can bang it out and it's going to be lapped up. If you want to do a real journalism article questioning the narrative, you've got to do a lot of work a lot of data, a lot of interviews. You've got to make sure you're well covered, a lot of work. So there's an automatic uh, kind of system mm-hmm. in place. I get you, I get you. Yeah, no, I
0: know I've read some of the most ridiculous stories. Like, for example, <laughs> you're more likely to get COVID if you're taller or you have longer hair and ridiculous stories like that. And the media would just lap it all up. I think it's just anything at all. Once the word COVID is in it and it's bad news, sure it's good for the papers. Uh, but listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us today this evening, Ivor. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and very informative. Uh, anytime time, Niall. There Thanks. you go. Ivor Cummins, uh, biomedical engineer, degree in 1990, and has all spent 30 years in corporate and technical leadership and has spent a lot of his life uh, studying modern chronic diseases. The facts, the figures, his interpretation. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Show.
1: Classic hit.